Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank created new stresses for banks of all sizes, including community and minority banks raising questions as to the optimal policy responses by government in an age of economic volatility and uncertainty. Questions like, how should government respond regulatorily when not all banks had made the missteps of Silicon Valley Bank? And in a world where some banks play especially crucial roles for vulnerable populations, should solutions be hardwired across the regulatory ecosystem to address financial instability, or is a more nuanced approach required? And if so, in what ways? Well, these were the kinds of questions we grappled with in an event I hosted with Georgetown and the National Bankers Association for this year's commemoration of Juneteenth, where my co-host Nicole Elam and I talked to a range of top policymakers across government and business. So as we commemorate the holiday this week, I wanted to share with our listeners a conversation I had with Travis Hill, the vice chairman of the FDIC. I love holidays like Juneteenth because they give us the opportunity to have the conversations we ought to be having anyway. And it is a big delight that so many people from so many different political persuasions and geographies found the time to participate, chip in, and learn. We are now back for another one-on-one uh, conversation with our leaders from government. Uh, and I am delighted to have Travis Hill, the vice chairman of the FDIC. Uh, the vice chair is a friend and has outed himself as a very unique and thoughtful voice in town. Vice Chair Hill, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I know you're busy and, and, and I really appreciate it. Well, well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. All right. So Silicon Valley Bank was a major event, obviously, uh, in the banking sector. So, so maybe I should just start by getting your perspective over at the FDIC as, as to some of the drivers and just your perception of the, of the policy response. I mean, what's been good and what's been bad thus far? Sure. Well, well, maybe I'll start with the first part of the question. So I think in terms of the drivers, I think it's really a pretty simple story. Um, in 2020 and 2021, the banking industry experienced an enormous explosion of money coming into the system in response to the unprecedented government stimulus resulting from the from the pandemic. Um, and the growth in deposits far outpaced the loan demand. So what a lot of banks did was they invested the new funds in effectively government bonds. And Silicon Valley Bank was really a poster child for this phenomenon where the bank experienced a dramatic increase in deposits and invested a large portion of that in U.S. Treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities. And in order to earn some extra yield, they kind of pushed their maturities out. And so when the Fed started to aggressively raise rates in 2022, SVB found itself with large losses to the point that the losses effectively wiped out the equity of the bank. Yeah. Then on the liability side, SVB had a deposit base that was almost all uninsured and was highly concentrated in, uh, among a 
close-knit community of depositors. Um, and so once some depositors got spooked and started to take out their money, we had what was really a classic bank run where all the depositors were trying to, to pull out their money as quickly as they could before the bank went under. And so really that's, that's kind of a simple story of big losses on the investment securities on the asset side and an unstable deposit base on the liability side, which was basically a recipe for a bank run. Um, and the second part of your question on on the what was good and bad about the response, you know, I think that's something we we probably could spend hours talking about. But a couple of observations when it comes to the failure of SVB, uh, I've talked about this before, but I think I think the biggest takeaway for me is just the importance of having more urgency. Um, and the government being more proactive in trying to find an acquirer as quickly as possible. You know, I think what what we really needed was somebody with with very high stature at the top of government reaching out to the different bank CEOs who potentially could make credible bids for the institution and encouraging them to bid, finding out what type of obstacles or impediments they, there might be to bidding and seeing what could be done to try to address some of those concerns, um, because I think once once the bridge banks opened that Monday, it was a reminder to everyone that that's a very undesirable place to be as as value kind of seeps out. I think by contrast, the process for First Republic Bank was a lot better. A big part of that was just having a lot of time and a runway where everyone knew the bank was in trouble. But I also think to the extent that there were hesitations around certain resolution options. I think the lessons of the SVB failure helped everyone kind of get over those hesitations. And so I think I think it was very positive that the bidding process was open to a large number of bank and non-bank bidders and that the the ultimate the ultimate bid that was selected was the one that was deemed least costly to the deposit insurance fund, which is what we're required by law to choose. All of which is not to say that that process was perfect, but but I think it it went a lot better than the than the SVB failure. Yeah, you know, you know what 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 I'm hearing here is you know that the time is of the essence. You know, when you have that kind of sort of shock or or or, or surprise, and and the the circumstances which you're rightfully um, noting can, can be very different depending on on uh, not just Silicon Valley Bank, but obviously uh, Signature, First Republic, and all the all the banks that came um, afterwards. Which, which kind of raises this this other sort of additional point, which is, you know, do you do you still get a sense that there's uh, some some undue risk in the system? I mean, what what or is there anything that's keeping you up at night right now? Well, I'll say first, I do think things have stabilized uh, pretty substantially since those initial days and weeks after SVB failed, and we we really haven't seen much in terms of unusual outflows in in the past few weeks. Um, but I think in the short term, the biggest thing is what happens with deposits and deposit funding costs. And the biggest factor there is how stubborn is inflation and what is the Fed doing with interest rate policy? Um, we've had four straight quarters of deposit declines. The last quarter was the largest decline in the largest quarterly de decline in deposits since the FDIC started keeping records on this in the early 80s about $470 billion in deposits left the system in the first quarter. And then as deposits are leaving, banks are forced to pay more to keep deposits. And so, you know, last quarter, the net interest margin across the industry fell for the first time since 
the Fed started hiking rates. So, you know, deposit costs continue to go up while the growth in the amount banks can earn on their assets has fallen off. Um, so all of that is just sort of putting increasing pressure on, on banks. And then in, in the longer term, I think the big question is just at some point, do we start to see problems with credit quality? And the, the biggest area people are watching is, of course, commercial real estate and, and office in particular. So far, the data still looks looks very good, all things considered. But the question of at some point, do we start to see some deterioration? And if so, how big is the problem and how much exposure do the banks have? I think those are those are all things that that we'll be watching closely. Yeah, you know the, the question of deposit flight and, and those statistics are are, are pretty uh, dramatic. And and you know when you think about the MDIs, um, CD and, and CDFIs, just like the regional banks, it's been interesting because there have been some who have obviously faced some real stress and and, and some pressures of of deposit flight as as well, which is which is really interesting because. It's also deposit flight from customers with relatively small deposit bases, right? Um, which 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 contradicts or is a little bit different from what you would see uh, with you know these large depositors with over two hundred fifty thousand dollars trying to exit. I mean, what do you think about those drivers, and 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 what kinds of policy responses do you think could sort of help stem that that tide? Yeah, so I think um, I think on MDI specifically. You know, and CDFIs. You know, MDIs and CDFIs often often really are community banks, and they you know have business models that look a lot like traditional community banks, and their their customer base is you know underserved communities. Um, after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, you know there was there was stress across the industry, and a lot of banks experienced some outflows, but the real severe stress was really concentrated among banks that had certain characteristics like very high reliance on uninsured deposits, large amounts of, of low yielding fixed rate assets, exposure to the tech community, venture capitalist community, et cetera. And MDIs and CDFIs, like lots of community banks, really didn't have those types of characteristics. So the, the stress at MDIs and CDFIs really was, was much more manageable and much uh, much less severe than it was at at certain other institutions, um, and I, I think one one illustration of that is if you look at MDIs and CDFIs in total in the first quarter, deposits actually increased, and so this was again in a quarter where we saw record decline in deposits across the industry at MDIs and CDFIs. Again, in total, with some variety from bank to bank, it it increased, and the second question in terms of policies that could potentially, you know, stem, stem the tide. Um, I mean, I think when it comes to deposits, I mean, one, you know, one thing that I think is certainly worthy of consideration is the Fed's reverse repo facility. You know, right now, money market funds and certain other counterparties can place substantial amounts at the reverse repo facility and earn a very high interest rate, um, almost as high as what the Fed pays out on bank reserves. But they have much different cost structures. So it's much easier for them to just pass that that rate along. And so that has served as a magnet to pull funds out of out of banks. You know, obviously this is a, you know, this is a question for the Fed and they have a difficult balancing act trying to balance their monetary policy objectives with stability in the banking sector. But it does seem like there might be small tweaks that could be made to try to make that a little bit of less of an attractive competitor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then on uh, one other thing I'll say just on the on the liquidity side, you know, banks have done a lot to try to shore up their defenses, you know, by updating their contingency funding plans, building up their cash positions, things like that. Um, and I think those types of things are are very helpful. And then on the government side, I think just whatever we can do to continue to try to destigmatize using the discount window so that it's not viewed as a sign of weakness if a bank borrows from the discount window. And again, things things have been very stable for a while now, but I think the more we can try to do to sort of contain things if there are more bumps in the road, I think I think those types of things are are very helpful. Yeah, it really is interesting. And, you know, there are certainly echoes of the past when you talk about the, the discount window and the stigma. I mean, you know, that's 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 been something, you know, that's that's been a challenge for so long. And and, and you're right, it'd be great if, if, you know, to figure out how to how to attack that 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 challenge. You know, I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked uh, the acting comptroller, uh, Mike Sue, who was on um, a, a little while back. And it, it sort of has to do with the fact that, you know, banks are getting or many banks are getting a lot bigger. It's something that we heard in the last panel. And, and obviously we have banks and financial institutions of, of tremendous variety of, of sizes, of enormous size and, and really small community banks, to your point, really servicing their, their community. What does this mean for MDIs in terms of, again, how they navigate both policy and economics in terms of how they think about how to survive and, and, and how to compete? Well, I, I totally agree that I think that one of the great strengths of the American banking system and, and financial system and economy is, is the great variety of different types of banks and financial institutions that we have, ranging from banks that have global operations and can, can serve customers around the world to tiny little community banks where they know all the people in the community and they're really part of the, the fabric of the community. Um, and of course, MDIs and CDFIs fit into that category where, you know, they are serving communities that often are, are disproportionately low and moderate income and, and communities that often are, are underserved. Um, I, think, I think from our perspective as regulators, it's, it's important to be mindful of that and to be thoughtful about having a, a regulatory approach that allows those types of small banks to still continue to to survive and and flourish, um, and you know I think two of the biggest challenges that we hear about all the time from small banks are technology and compliance. And so you know on the technology side, I think you know finding ways to enable small banks to be able to adopt new technologies, partner with third party service providers um, because you know they don't have the economies of scale and the budgets that that large banks do. Um, and then on the on the compliance side, you know, as as I think we all know, it's you know there's there's basically an endless list of rules and guidelines and policies that banks need to stay on top of. And so again, just as we think about how to how to balance things, um, I think it's important just to be mindful of of the challenges of small banks and of the the benefits that they provide to their communities. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really interesting. I mean, certainly uh, those are issues that I've I've really had an interest in. And, and the very last panel as well, you know, they were hitting on, on on many of the of the points that you're making now. One of the more interesting observations that was made is right now it's not just a question of of capital and capitalization. It's something that we had also talked about with Mike Sue, but it's it's that technology question, it's technical assistance question, and it's how to really keep those banks competitive 
while also, I guess, you know, keeping in mind and being mindful of of, of risks that uh, you know pop up, you know, some, with Silicon Valley Bank, as you mentioned, it's it's uh, it, it wasn't a revolutionary new kind of risk. It's 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 right. it's, it's something that's kind of inherent to to banking. So so just to sort of take that one one sort of additional layer uh, forward, you know, when you think about Silicon Valley Bank and the lessons there, you know, you know, are, are there one or two things that you're looking at or, or thinking about, or that this may come to mind uh, when it comes to how we should pursue, you know, the the oversight of MDIs and CDFIs? I think the answer is not really. You know, as as I sort of said before, I think the you know MDIs and CDFIs are are very different, certainly than the banks that failed. Um, but also than the banks that that really were under the most stress and pressure. And so I think as we think about the lessons learned and we think about po policies to address those lessons, you know, I think it's important not to overreact and not to sort of saddle the whole industry with with overcorrections that that may be designed to to address targeted problems. And what we don't want to do is make it more difficult for, institutions like MDIs and CDFIs to be able to navigate when there is stress. Yeah. So, so we only have a couple of, of, of uh, minutes left, but you know, the, the, the role of the vice chair of the FDIC is a really interesting role. I mean, and, and you know, for, for my students uh, who may still be watching this, you know, you should look at, you know, the, the specifically enumerated powers that are, that, are, that are vested in the vice chair, you know, but, but when you, when you look forward in terms of your own priorities, you know, in the next couple of months, the next years, particularly against this backdrop of Silicon Valley Bank and, and, and again, what it means for the regional and smaller banks, the community banks, you know, are, are there any kinds of things that you'd like to see? Are there any kinds of priorities uh, that, that you have? I think the biggest thing is that as the banking agencies, the FDSC, along with the Federal Reserve, the OCC, the other financial regulators, think about their upcoming rulemakings, policies, I think it's important just to keep in mind both the aggregate impact of all the things that are under consideration and the current environment that we're in. You know, the, the Fed in particular has has talked about a pretty ambitious rulemaking agenda for the for the coming months and, and years. Um, and I think this is still at a time where there are still some fragilities in in parts of the, the banking sector. Um, and, you know, I think we're, you know, in some ways still sort of trying to rebuild confidence in, in the industry. Um, and so I think at least, at least when I sit here and think about it, I think there, there's a compelling argument to at least just get through this rate hiking cycle and sort of see where the dust settles once we're through that, take a look at the lay of the land, see what all the lessons learned. And then at that point, kind of take a look at the potential proposals that we could consider and think about which ones are are the most worthwhile given given the conditions at the time. I think in the absence of that, you know, and I, I I'm saying that sort of being realistic about, you know, what what's in the works. Um, I think it probably would be helpful for, you know, for some additional clarity just on sort of what is the universe of potential things that regulators are considering um, just so that the industry and markets can kind of can kind of prepare for that. And then as the agencies start to issue these proposals and move forward, again, as I said, I think being mindful of the aggregate impact of, of everything that, that's coming, which includes not only what the banking agencies are thinking, but also other agencies like the CFPB, the SEC, et cetera, 
Um, and again, just, just being mindful of the potential that the institutions that may be feeling the, the biggest brunt of the regulatory onslaught may also be the ones that are sort of under the most pressure from you know, economic and, and market conditions. Fletcher, thank you so, so, so much uh, again for your time. Excellent uh, points. We'll be talking about technology, in fact, in, in the next panel. And, you know, the interagency process and sort of knowing what's going on uh, is really important. But, but you know, your, your, your range of expertise on these matters, super impressive. And, uh, you know, your, your range of knowledge in general, you know, lots of people don't know all these little things about you, like your 1990s knowledge of hip hop. Far superior to mine, unfortunately. I can't believe I'm saying that. I'm not. But, sure uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really good. You're good. You're good. Uh, but but seriously, it, it's a great to chat on these kinds of issues and on the substantive uh, issues as well. You know, um, I really appreciate your help, and and this was a, a fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you. Of course, we're, we're happy to be here. Thanks for having me, and uh, look forward to uh, coming back some other time. Cool. I have always felt and frankly acknowledged that banking policy isn't easy. It's a sector of the economy that is fraught with inherent instabilities and fragilities, and the question all of our regulators have to figure out is how to address those fragilities in ways that promote the economy and speak to the best of our collective and shared values. Conversations like these, part technocratic, part policy, and imbued in good faith, are how we as a country can get there. I hope you enjoyed this stab at that great American dream. And to everyone, a happy Juneteenth. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.